This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue, opening the minds to the public, to what takes place in reality, as opposed to what you think takes place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Justice Tech Pros Podcast. Here's your host, Dominic Crea. Hello, listeners. I hope everybody's doing well. Today, I'm going <clears> to... <throat> excuse me. Today, I'm going to... Um, be covering a few items and the main theme of today is going to really focus on something I touched on a few times in different episodes in the past basically showing how chain of events take place as far as what you're allowed to submit and what you're not allowed to submit being part of the defense team and how you have to ask for permission from the judge to introduce items to trial that have to do with the character of let's say an informant that the defense may be up against. Uh, regardless of whether it was in the paper or whether it's a known issue, you have to ask permission if the judge will let you introduce it and then the judge will determine if it has to, if they feel it aids in the truth-telling ability, in the, in the, in the person that's affected's truth-telling ability. So if it is an informant, the judge will weigh what you're looking to introduce versus their opinion if it has any bearing on being able to tell the truth. Now I found that to be a bit of a gray area because it's it's left up to a big opinion-based decision. Uh, for me personally, I think somebody's actions and what they do, it all relates to truth-telling ability uh, due to the fact that it paints their character. You want to know who you're dealing with, what they've done in the past, what they're capable of, and I believe it all it all coincides with that. It, it all has to do with the one big picture of measuring who's in front of you and if you believe them or if you don't believe them. And credibility has a lot to do with that. And the type of individual has a lot to do with that. And what's very interesting is during trial, as I've mentioned, they will almost always talk about the defendant's past and things they've done, things that are totally irrelevant to the charges, but they're still able to talk about them, and the defense will fight and look to object, but nine out of ten times uh, their objections are overruled, and the defendant's past is allowed to be brought up throughout the trial. In addition to their past, bear in mind, they're also allowed to bring up accusations that they may not be charged with, but they're allowed to talk about in trial. For example, uh, in the trial of Stephen Crea, Matthew Madonna, Christopher Londonio, and Terrence Caldwell, they brought up a complete cockamamie story about how an assault was supposed to take place on, um, on an individual, and the informant John Panisi was tasked with it. And they, that took up a lot of, probably hours of testimony. But bear in mind, that wasn't a charged crime. The defendants weren't charged with that crime. Nobody was charged with that crime. It was just a 
supposed crime that allegedly took place. There was no evidence to it. The person who they claimed was the victim of it actually testified and said uh, they didn't think it had anything to do with any of the defendants, that it was something separate. Uh, apparently they got assaulted and if you read the court testimony the assault quote-unquote and I say it that way because apparently somebody jumped out of a car and told this witness stay away from my wife and like swung a rubber hose at him that was it and jumped back in the car and took off so I don't know what kind of assault that is and if they're trying to say it's part of this big organized crime case and that's the type of assault they do they fling a, a rubber hose at somebody and the the person the prosecution was painting as the victim didn't even go to the hospital or anything, didn't even report it, just kind of blew it off like a nonsense thing. Uh, this person was in bars and talking to women, so he just assumed it had something to do with somebody he was talking to. It sounds like it did if somebody jumps out of the car, says, stay away from my wife, and flings a rubber hose. But anyway, during the testimony, the informant John Panisi gave this huge, elaborate story how he was tasked with assaulting this guy. And make a long story short, over a year went by and John uh, Panisi didn't, wasn't involved in it and then he said he found out it was done. So I guess he's hinting that the rubber hose attack, which <laughs> sounds crazy, I mean, just flinging a rubber hose was part of it. But my point just is they were focused on this act and it took up a ton of testimony and it had nothing to do... The defendants weren't charged with this crime. It was just something they were talking about. And what amazes me about that is the defense is not allowed to go and talk about crimes that the informants did that has nothing to do with the charges. The defense can't go in and say, well, this informant was uh, doing crimes. They were um, whatever it may be, dealing drugs while they were working for the government. It's always a problem introducing that. But they could go on for hours talking about a supposed act that didn't even take place. And when it did, it was done by some random person that said, stay away from my wife. And they tried pinning that on the defendants, trying to make it have something to do with the defendants. Or an elaborate story to try to make the puzzle pieces fit. And you could see what they try to do. If they have a weak case, they'll focus on these other things. They'll focus on the past. They'll focus on um, these made-up crimes where in this case nobody was injured nobody was hurt it was a rubber hose the guy jumped out of the car swung it jumped back in and took off after saying stay away from my wife but yet they tried linking that to a defendant and uh, the informant gave a huge long story about that and it was uh, it's if, if you read the testimony it's crazy it went on the defense lawyer actually had to do a chart to keep trap track of all the different names that were supposedly going to be involved in this assault that when it took place was none of the people that were named during the trial testimony uh, uh, they, they just went on and on about that and I was a little confused while listening to this during trial because I didn't know where it was going what it had to do with the charged crimes and it had nothing to do with the charged crimes so with that said, I just want to segue into my point. My point is, whenever the defense wants to introduce something, it has to get approved by the judge, and the defense will say, we want to bring this up, and then the uh, prosecution will usually put in a reply saying why they shouldn't be able to get, uh, bring it up, 
and then the judge will rule. And a lot of times the judge rules that the defense can't bring it in. And I'll give you a little bit of example of that. Um, we have, this was in the United States versus Eugene Costell case. And this is the government basically arguing that they don't want to allow the defense to bring in uh, 1989 homicide that John Panisi uh, had one went to jail for back in 1989 and it talks about how uh, John Panisi shot and killed another man in a dispute over a woman uh, both John Panisi and the victim were dating it says CW2 at this time CW2 was John Panisi uh, this is a public docket you can see the case number up top in the docket number so this is public information if anybody wanted to pull it this was filed by the government towards the towards uh, submitted to the judge prior to the Castell trial where they were basically asking the judge not to allow the defense to talk about this to talk about the 1989 homicide um, and also, they didn't want to bring up where, if you notice on this line, CW2 has admitted to the government that during his testimony in the 90, 1990 trial, he deliber deliberately made false statements in an effort to shield himself and his co-defendant from liability. So basically, he perjured himself, which is a big point that you want to make during a, a trial. You want to show if, if an informant or a person is prone to, to lying or prone to changing the story. And this was, uh, they wanted to stop that, stop the defense from, from bringing that up, how he previously lied on his prior trial. So this is the letter they submitted where they're making the argument. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's boring, but the, for the listeners, it's just boring when somebody reads the whole thing. But uh, basically, to, to summarize... The government saying it, it should have no bearing on um, his truth-telling ability and should not be permitted into court. They raised two points. That's one. The other one that they don't want to allow in is allegations that John Panisi committed domestic violence should be excluded. Um, and they elaborate on that. They say the defendant has also informed the government that he intends to cross-examine uh, the defense attorney for Eugene Castell was uh, Edward McMahon. And I just want to make sure I have that correct. I'm sorry, Edward McMahon. I'm thinking of the freaking host. <laughs> Gerald McMahon, not Edward. Sorry, I apologize for that. Gerald McMahon. So <clears throat> the defense, I'm going to show you the defense's reply to this. But this is the government basically saying... Uh, the defendant has also informed the government, and when they say the defendant, they're talking about the attorney. The attorney has informed the government, so in this case it's Gerald McMahon, has informed the government that he intends to cross-examine CW2, who's John Panisi, uh, that he dated one of the women in question at the same time of a defendant. So the defendant in the case, uh, John Panisi, the defense team was trying to explain that the defendant was dating uh, the same woman at one time as, as John Panisi. Uh, they're just saying that although it's factually absurd to suggest that jo John Panisi began cooperating against the mafia and pled guilty to crimes carrying a life sentence 
in order to testify against someone who slept with an ex-girlfriend. So the government's trying to say he's not, um, he's not testifying to get back at anybody. That's absurd. What I found interesting is they say uh, he pled guilty to crimes carrying a life sentence. Okay, that sounds great. Did he get a life sentence? No, he got time served. There was no time. Didn't, didn't serve a day. So he was facing a life sentence apparently due to the crimes, but he got he didn't get any time because of his cooperation. So they throw that in there to try to to make it look as if the informant is uh, facing time and he still gave information even though he's facing a life sentence. I've spoken about this. Come on, when does that ever happen? Once they get that 5K1 letter, which is a letter that gives rave reviews about the informant, they're not going to do a life sentence. That's, and I've even said I'd like to see the statistics on that of how many of these informants, percentage-wise, wound up serving big time after they cooperated and were successful in a case. It's a very low percentage. I'm very confident in saying that. Uh, so they want to they want to prevent two things uh, during this trial. They wanted to prevent the past of John Panisi, where he uh, committed a homicide. Uh, they didn't want that coming in, and they didn't want the claims of domestic abuse coming in either. Again, they're trying to say it has nothing to do with truth-telling ability. Me, I disagree. I think it has to do with character, which all revolves around truth-telling ability of somebody. When you, when you trust somebody, you want to know what they're all about, right? That's how I feel. So here's attorney Gerald McMahon's response, and he elaborates a little bit. And his, so now these two responses, so you understand how it works, these two filings go towards the judge, and then the judge decides whether she's gonna, he or she is gonna allow the testimony in or not allow it in. And from what I understand here, what took place, they did not allow the domestic violence uh, cross-examination to take place, so that wasn't allowed. And I'm gonna bring up a, a section of the transcript, whereas the defense attorney and the prosecution were talking to the judge on that issue in a little more depth before the judge decided not to allow it in. So here's uh, Gerald McMahon's response, and he's talking about the evidence about the manslaughter, and he lays out that the facts underlying Panisi's 1990 manslaughter conviction demonstrate a compelling relevance to this case. In 1989, Panisi shot and killed a young man who made the mistake of dating Panisi's girlfriend. At his murder trial, Panisi asserted that he acted in self-defense and testified approximately 10 times at trial that his romantic rival pulled out a gun before Panisi shot him in the heart. The government now concedes that this deceased romantic rival not only, not only did not pull out a gun, but he did not even have a gun. So that goes against what Panisi claimed. Uh, Panisi claimed the guy had a gun. The government conceded the guy did not have a gun. The gun found at the crime scene by the police was actually the gun carried by his co-defendant. So the gun they found was carried by Panisi's co-defendant, and Panisi threw the murder weapon off the Verrazano Bridge. So Gerald McMahon is explaining, uh, I'll read this passage, because he's saying those facts demonstrating Panisi's insane jealousy are particularly relevant in this case because Panisi believes that defendant Castell was secretly having an affair with Panisi's girlfriend. Panisi's belief was so strong that he punched, and they give her initials, uh, teeth out, 
The government wants to keep that assault from the jury as a mere incident of domestic violence. Taken together, however, they demonstrate that Panisi will go to great lengths such as murder and falsely accusing a rival to monopolize his love interest. Then it goes on to cite cases to support the argument. That's a big part of a submission. You want to cite cases. Um, I don't know. To me, I think that does that is something that is relevant for the jury to hear. The jury should know who's in front of them. I know the government likes to clean up a lot of these witnesses and put their best foot forward and make them seem as ideal citizens. But the same way, again, not to harp on it, but it's a strong point, so I have to make it. The same way, if you read trial testimony in a lot of cases, they go into the past on all of the defendants, things they've already served time for, things they've already paid the debts to society. So why is it one-sided? Shouldn't it then apply, shouldn't the same rule then apply for the informants? The informants are being relied upon to tell the truth and people's lives are in their hands based on whether or not the jury believes them. So to keep this stuff shielded, I, I have a hard time understanding the judge's rationale with that other than they're just not being fair. I, I just, I try to look at things from different perspectives, try to understand their train of thought and with this, I can't. It would make more sense to me if they said nobody's past is allowed in. You can't bring in the defendants and you can't bring in the informants. Then okay, at least that makes a little sense. They're keeping it across the board with the same ruling. But to pick and choose, that shifts the scales of balance. That, that knocks things out of whack and it, and it changes getting a fair trial. And Gerald McMahon goes on to talk about Panisi's mental condition. The government discloses that Panisi has taken the antidepressant Welbutrin. Uh, medical journals indicate that one side effect of Welbutrin is confusion. Defendants should therefore be allowed limited questioning as to Panisi's clarity of mind. From what I've read, I did not see that being asked during trial. So it appears that the the judge ruled that wasn't allowed in the allegations of knocking the woman's teeth out wasn't allowed in and they go on a little bit more about that i'm going to show you a transcript from um this is a section of the transcript this is on the court testimony this is prior to the trial uh, to the jurors coming out this is the court I believe this is prior to trial. I'm not sure if this took place. I didn't see the date on it. I have to look. This could have took... A lot of times what happens is before they bring the jury in, the court, the prosecution, and the defense will have little arguments of what they want to have that day, what they want to ask that day. And then the court will decide right then and there if they're going to allow it. So I believe, uh, I believe this may have happened while the jury was out of the room before they came in this was an argument taking place and you have the court they're asking uh the prosecution who is this mr scott and they're asking him what is his fear that that um mr mcmahon is going to do what's his fear what's he concerned about and mr scott goes on to say he's going to accuse the witness quite theatrically of assaulting this woman in the second row so the woman who was assaulted apparently was at this trial, who he's brought here to make as much of a show as possible. But regardless of her presence, it simply doesn't bear on credibility. Again, totally disagree. 
if you're accused of knocking a woman's teeth out and the woman's there in court, uh, I believe that has a strong bearing on credibility. I, I, I couldn't disagree more with that. I know they use that, and I understand the prosecution's point of view. They're trying to win the case. They don't want certain things come in. I understand that. But for the judge, I mean, the prosecutor's doing their job. They're trying to keep as much out as they can that could hurt their case. But a fair judge should look at this and say, it absolutely has to do with credibility. And the court says, without interjecting <coughs> epithets, what kind of question is he going to ask? And then the prosecutor goes on to say, I assume he's going to ask, did you not assault the woman who you believe the defendant was dating? Did you not hurt her badly? Did you not knock her teeth out? These were things that I've learned from proffers by defense counsel, Your Honor. And the court goes on to say, Mr. Mr. McNeese asking the attorney now, are these the expectations real? Basically, is what the prosecutor asking, is that what you're going to do? And Mr. McMahon says, well, Judge, I think it's a little bit overstated. The court asks, in what, what aspect? And Mr. McMahon says, I can limit the questioning. So instead of saying, did you knock her teeth out, which he actually did, did you assault her by punching her in the face without getting into the teeth? So the defense attorney is just trying to structure it in a way where he could bring it out because he feels, as do I and as... I believe 90% of the public would feel it is important for the jury to understand what they're dealing with and the capabilities of the person in front of them. So this is the process of what goes on, how you got to try to get these things in. And unfortunately, more often times than not, the judge won't allow them in. And I could tell when I read the trial transcript, the judge didn't allow this in because he, he did not elaborate on it. He didn't bring up about the teeth so I assume they had to play with the words a little bit, but it appears that jury was not allowed to to get that information, to use that information to help them determine if John Panisi was be a credible witness. And the same thing happened on the case with Stephen Crea and, and Matthew Madonna, uh, Terrence Caldwell and Christopher Londonio. This was also asked to be introduced, and I'm going to show you that, and again, it was not allowed. Um, I'm going to show you the uh, request that was put in. Now, this is during the United States versus uh, Londonio, Crea, Caldwell, and Madonna case. The defense team we put in an omnibus motion, which is basically a giant motion with all different issues that you want to address. Sometimes they call it omnibus motion. Uh, it allows you just to bring up several areas that you want the court to rule on and advise on prior to trial. And you can include a bunch of different items within that motion. And one of this, in this section of the motion, this was the defense team for Stephen Crea asking the court to allow the cross-examination of John Panisi as it relates to his domestic abuse. And it says, the, the, the sectional heading is item C, John Panisi's paranoia and delusional behavior. The court should also deny the government's request to restrict the defense's cross-examination of Panisi's engagement in domestic abuse. So the court had prior submitted as they did with the Castell case, 
They prior submitted a letter to the judge, basically asking the judge, hey, judge, don't allow this. Don't allow them to ask Panisi about him beating uh, his girlfriend. So this was, was the defense's response to try to convince the judge that it is necessary. Unfortunately, the judge knocked this down and it wasn't allowed to be introduced. But this was the argument. I want, I want the audience to see how these arguments are made and how they play out and the defense's point of view as to why it's important. And in this submission, it says, the court should also, uh, there's a uh, misspelling error there. I see, I see it says the could, but it should say, the court should also deny the government's request to, to restrict the defense's cross-examination of Panisi's engagement in domestic abuse, because that line of examination helps establish Panisi's history of paranoia and delusional behavior during the time of the events that he expected to testify about. And then, it, again, it's a citation. You always want to use court citations to support your argument. Uh, that That is a lot of bearing on how a judge will rule. They want to see prior rulings, and that kind of helps guide them as to what's the right way and what's the wrong way to rule, I guess. Uh, but what you will see what happens oftentimes, the defense will cite cases to support their argument and the prosecution would cite cases to support their argument. So then it's the matter of the judge to read all the arguments, read the citations, and decide where they lay. And it goes on, he says, in this regard, the defense has a good faith basis to question Panisi about recent instances in which he suffered extreme paranoia and delusional behavior. For example, the, let me bring up the other part of that. The defense investigation has unearthed that Panisi's paranoia was so extreme that he would require his recent former girlfriend to answer him on FaceTime, even if she was traveling on a highway or otherwise unable to use her phone at the moment, to, at that moment, to ensure that another man was not present with her. The fact that Panisi's paranoia and delusional behavior has continued decades after the jealousy-stricken murder he committed in 1989, to include current instances when he burned his former girlfriend's hair and knocked her teeth out with his fist establishes a serious issue for the jury to consider when evaluating his ability to perceive, perceive surrounding events and his credibility general, generally. Got a little tongue-tied tongue there. Again, I think it's laid out right here. It's, it's about evaluating his credibility. The, a jury would need to understand these things and then leave it up to the jury. The defense will argue, the, the prosecution would argue, and then leave it up to the jury to decide what they believe or don't. But to not even let it in, I don't see the logic in that other than you don't want to give the defendants a fair trial because you're allowing things in about their history, you're trying to paint their credibility, but once it's asked to be done for the, the informants or the opposition to the defendant, you don't get any leeway with that. You're not allowed to ask about it. You're not allowed to bring it up. They want the jury to only see the positive aspects of the informant. And I just don't understand how that's a fair system. We know it's not. I I'm asking a rhetorical question, but I'm highlighting these things just to make the public aware of what goes on. I could tell by reading comments and chats and in forums, people really don't know what goes on. They think, oh, well, that that's an automatic. That has to be allowed in the court. No, it doesn't. There's a whole process for it. 
You may really have the goods on somebody and think, oh, this is a slam dunk. We're going to annihilate this witness or this informant. But then the judge doesn't let the items in. And, and, and now you're behind the eight ball where you were in a power position. Now you lost all your cards. The judge stripped you of your cards because they're not allowing it in. One of your main arguments, they're not allowing you in. They're not allowing you to highlight to the jury the type of individual that the jury needs to rely on for credibility and for truth-telling ability. And when you can't expose character, they're really handcuffing you. They're handcuffing the defense. And then it goes on to say uh, that Panisi had engaged in delusional, psychotic, and felonious behavior, which happened to occur in relation to his violent outburst against women, does not undermine the legitimacy of the defense's right to impeach him on this subject. Again, it's a strong argument. It's given a strong argument of how not letting that in, it's stripping the defense of impeaching him where it relates to that topic. Now you have to drop that point. The judge don't allow that in. Now you can't use that. You can't, you can't bring that out. You can't talk about it to the jury. Moreover, if the government's failed to report Panisi's felonious behavior, and then he gives an example, acts of domestic abuse and violence, to local and state authorities for prosecution, that would constitute a benefit that Panisi received as part of his cooperation, which the defense is always entitled to expose. And then he quotes a case supporting that argument. So right there's a great point. Uh, I thought that was a fantastic point at the time, and I think it's a fantastic point now. If the government was aware of John Panisi hitting a woman, knocking a woman's teeth out, having violent behavior towards women, and they didn't report it to the local and state authorities, that's another benefit that this informant received. He wasn't prosecuted for those, char for those crimes. It wasn't part of his agreement, wasn't part of his plea agreement, so he got off, if these allegations are true, based on everything that's being laid out, me, personally, I believe it's true based on everything I've read, everything I've seen, based on the actual victim showing up at the other trial and sick, sitting in the second row. To me, that tells me everything I need to know. She wouldn't be there if, if she had something to hide or if she was lying about what took place to her because I'm sure she was well aware they could have put her on the stand and talked to her about it, and I believe she was willing to do that. Being they weren't allowed to bring it up, she never got that opportunity. But to me, that speaks volumes. That tells me all I need to know. So they could go back and forth what's not true, what's not. I just read between the lines. I read what took place. I read the arguments. I read the defense side, the prosecution side. I read that the actual victim was in the courtroom. I use all of those items to make my personal final determination. Who knows? Somebody may read this and say, ah, I still don't believe it. Teach his own. I'm not here to convince anybody one way or another. I just lay out how things took place, my point of view, and that, that's really all I, all I do here. I'm not here to, to argue about it, say, no, believe this. Believe what you want. I'm just going to show you the facts, show you how things played out. You decide what you want to believe. But at the very least, if you're open-minded and, and you're reasonable, you should, you should agree with the simplistic point that if they're allowed to bring up the defendant's past, they should also be allowed to bring up an informant's past. You should at least agree with that. You should see the relevancy. If not, then you're totally unreasonable and 
There's nothing I could tell you. <clears throat> and then it just goes on. Overall, the fact that Panisi demonstrated extreme paranoia and delusional behavior, which also triggered his psychotic and violent felonious acts during the time of the events that he's expected to testify about, is relevant to his credibility. And again, cites a bunch of cases supporting how those type of actions are relevant to credibility. Now, unfortunately, that was that argument was lost. It was denied, which, again, with that case, it just seemed like that was the common theme. A lot of things just got denied. Good points were made, but the arguments never seemed to go in our favor. It was always denied, but always approved with the prosecution. Hopefully now, the way things are playing out, that theme will change based on our current submissions. We'll see how that plays out. The other thing I wanted to talk about, this is in relation to the first trial that John Panisi was part of, where he was charged with murder. This is from November 16th, 1990. I just found this interesting. What happened was all the supporters of the individual lost his life that John Panisi was accused of murdering and then later convicted of murdering, they wanted to wear black ribbons, black and red ribbons, if you notice. Uh, defendant, the defendants objected to the victim's family. So John Panisi's attorney and his co-defendant's attorney objected to the victim's family and their supporters and spectators being able to wear corsages of red and black ribbons to pay homage to and support the gentleman who lost his life. So the overview is before the jury entered the courtroom, defendant's counsel brought to the attention of the court that approximately 35 people were wearing red and black corsages. The defense argued, defendants argued that the corsages represented an unfair attempt to impede justice and influence and or pressure the jury and or court, thereby denying them a fair and impartial courtroom environment and resulting trial. The court ruled that the corsages could not be worn in court. The court rejected any premise that people who wanted to communicate, protest, views, or feelings of any kind or nature for or against any person, issue, or cause had a constitutional right to do so within the confines of a public courtroom. The court ruled that nothing in U.S. court prevented a trial court and the furtherance of the administration of justice from the even-handed enforcement of reasonable rules. So basically they're trying to make the argument that they should be allowed they should be allowed to wear it. Uh, it's public courtroom. They should be able to show their support. They should be able to allow. They should be allowed to wear corsages in honor of the gentleman who lost his life. Long story short, the uh, the court prohibited the spectators and the victim's family from wearing the corsages, so they weren't allowed to wear those during that trial. A lot of the supporters wanted to wear items to show support, which again, that's a uh, a case-by-case -case basis, because I have seen courtrooms where people would wear the picture of their loved one who may have been a victim, so in this case, they didn't allow it. But, but my point just is, it goes to show how they try to prevent, how everything has to get permission, or you could fight everything. They could even, the, pro, the defense team, the prosecution, they could even fight what goes on in the courtroom. And then it all boils down to the judge to decide how to let these things play out. So I'm not kidding when I say the judge is God in those courtrooms. They run the show. And you really have to pray you get a fair one. Because if you don't, they, they could do a lot of damage. They could do a lot of damage.
Now, I always talk about how it's important after trial, during trial, whatever, during investigation, when you're working on cases, you never want to stop searching. You never want to stop looking for things that could help your client, your defendant. You want to check social media. You want to check comments because it'll give you... Now, I'm not saying it's gospel. I'm not saying you take those comments, oh, it's gospel. But what it does do, and this is very important, what it does do is it opens the door and it allows for down the road, perhaps you'll have, if you, if you get a retrial or you're going to trial, you have subpoena power. You could then start subpoenaing people to find out and get the details of their claims. And I'll give you an example. During our investigation, we came across a few things which are going to be items of interest for a retrial and items of, of interest to dive into further, whereas subpoena power would be used. I blocked out names, I blocked out things because that's not for public information right now. This is, um, this is just, I want to make a point. This was on Facebook and somebody, the, the, the uh, title, um, it has to do with John Panisi. And this individual saying, I was with this bum in Fishkill Correctional, and it cuts off. But I'm going to read what he wrote. I was reading the headline. Now I'll read what he wrote. He wrote, um, I was with this bum in Fishkill Correctional Facility. He is a liar. He would make up stories that people were out to get him and sign into prison protective custody. He did the very same thing again here. People on the street know what I am saying is true. It is how John Panisi is. He is a lying snake. Nobody was outside his house waiting to get him. He imagined that. Just like he imagined the scenarios in prison. These men he lied about. They are falsely imprisoned and should be freed. So now, what the defense needs to do, and I'm just giving you a case to help any defendants that are listening, any defense teams that are listening, families of defendants that are listening. That's why it's very important. Don't minimalize social media. Don't minimalize these outlets. They're very important to gather data, gather information on people to open up doors. Now, I don't know this person. We don't know this person. But what happens is, now you interview this person. If necessary, you subpoena this person. You have them elaborate. And it could be something that could help the case. It could be something that could open the door. Maybe this individual has a story to tell that you could then ask the judge that you want to call this person as a witness. There's a lot of doors that could be open from, from perusing these different sites, these comments. I know it's painstaking. I know it's annoying to even read a lot of comments that are made, it's frustrating. Put that out of your head, put your game face on, and realize that there's a, there's, bigger, there's a bigger picture that must be grasped when you're looking at these things. You can't throw them away as if, ah, they're just stupid comments. Investigate them. Talk to the people. Reach out. Get an investigation team to reach out a private investigator, follow up with these leads. You never know what could break, open a case, and you never know what could help you. I'll give you another example. This was on a podcaster's, and I blocked them out, but this is on a podcaster's podcast. This was one of the um, comments that was made. Somebody says, great video, JC. So John Panisi, a.k.a. Bait, I don't know what that means, is my bio father, and me and my mother will make a video proving the proof. Stay tuned. Bate Jr. wants his father in his life. So now this guy's claiming to be John Panisi's son, biological son. Again, investigative purposes. 
Not saying it's true, not saying it's not true. What, am I, what I am saying, for the defense team, investigative items. Track the people down. If you have to issue subpoenas come time of trial, issue subpoenas. Get information out of them. Talk to them. Find out what they have to support this claim. Is it legitimate? Is it somebody who's just nuts? You have to vet these things out. You can't just toss them aside as if they don't mean anything. You want to devote the time to investigate, uncover, and see what's going on. And then you got this uh, <laughs> this gentleman underneath said, what the F, Panisi's your real dad, we, yeah, we were born. Uh, and then there was a follow-up to that. Uh, the individual then says, me and my mother are making a video soon. We do not want to do it this way, but our hand was forced. At the end of the day, I'm just looking for a father, that's all. Again, it's about credibility. Is this witness somebody who abandoned a biological father? Don't know. Got to find out. Something you want to investigate. Uh, a biological son, I'm sorry. Abandoned a biological son. Again, is it true? Don't know. Got to look into it. But to blow it off is a mistake for the defendant, for the defense, for everybody trying to fight a case. The same way they look to exploit put media articles, pump out media articles, go into forums, uh, insert information to try to drum up conversation, to try to get the public to be biased against the defendants. You have to do your part in investigation and in drumming up discussions. Good. I always talk about putting good things out there, putting things on YouTube, uh, episodes like this that I try to do where I just try to give a different way of looking at things. I try to expose certain things. I try to give insight to how the process works. Those are all valuable tools just to allow the public to make a more informed decision. Now, you're going to have members of the public who just don't care if they believe somebody's guilty. They're guilty. There's nothing you could do with those individuals. That's life. That's how it goes. Some people are just not reasonable. That's not who, who I appeal to here. Who I appeal to here are open-minded individuals who may believe something until they're given more information and they're not too proud to change their opinion. They just go by the data in front of them, the documents in front of them, the information they're learning. And that's who I try to appeal to because uh, the naive part of me, let's just say, hopes that those are the individuals who make it on a jury. So when they're judging somebody's life, at least I know I played my small, minute part and helping somebody get a fairer trial. And I don't know if that'll ever happen, but hey, if I get one juror who winds up serving, that's a win. That's a win. I, 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 somebody wound up serving that benefited from what I'm putting out, I call that a win. It's all worth it to me then. And even with the commenters, I get a lot of great commenters who are open-minded, who they may not agree with everything I say, but that's not even the argument. That's not even the d debate. I'm not building people, robots, who have to think like me and act like me. That's not why I'm here. I don't care about that. What I do care about is just giving some information, putting out some, some documented information. I try to support my claims with videos, with documents I could share. Trust me. Again, not to harp on it, but if I could show protective order stuff, man, I, I would do a lot of damage to these lying informants. I would really show the people what their character is all about. We're talking some things that the public has no idea. And if they did, forget it. I think their supporters, their, their diehard supporters would actually have to question things. But 
There's no sense talking about it. Can't do anything about it at this point. Maybe one day it will be lifted and I'll be doing a surprise episode. And I'll just title it, The, the Protective Order Has Been Lifted. But until then, I got to use what I could what I could find and what we have done on our own investigative side. That's not under protective order. Now I want to show you something else. Again, why it all goes back to you have to investigate all these different areas. Uh, it's very, family members could do it. I understand, you know, it's time consuming. It's costly if you have your defense team do it. But these are things family members could do, supporters could do to try to help out their loved one or somebody they care about. You go on all these different sites. You go on all these different things. You search certain names, search certain people, see what comes up, see what could possibly help you. And during our investigation, this came up, which again, don't know if it's true, not true, but it's something that is going to be worth investigating. Uh, somebody posted on here, John Panisi exposed, talking to a 19-year-old girl. Uh, I'm not going to get into the other of it because <laughs> it's a little crazy, the heading. Uh, but you can read it. I I'll read you what it says. And again, this is something for investigative purposes. You see something like this. This is where when the time comes for trial, during investigation, you go sit down with the people involved, you interview them, you subpoena people involved, you subpoena records, you make sure it's legitimate. If they try to say, oh, I never said that, it's a screenshot, okay, may very well be. You got to subpoena it, subpoena directly from the, from the provider. In this case, it looks like an Instagram uh, private message. And in this, you have, uh, this appears to be John Panisi's account. He's telling some, some girl, uh, good morning. You hope you had a good night's rest. It's a little small, so I'm trying to read it. Is everything okay? You're a little different. I noticed you stopped liking anything from me. So I guess he's upset she wasn't liking his post. This girl wasn't liking his post. At first, I thought maybe you were busy with school or life itself, but took notice that you were liking others' posts. So it appears he saw she, which is a little weird. I mean, looks like he was tracking if she was liking other posts and not liking his. And that got him banged up, I guess. That's odd. Uh, not that you have to like my posts. You do not have to. I do not recall doing or maybe saying anything to make you act like this. Please, by all means, let me know if I am mistaken. Communication is key. Enjoy the rest of the day, John. So that's weird. I don't know. I guess he's upset that this girl on Instagram was liking other people's posts and not his. And then somebody posted this on Reddit. Reddit's a site for those not familiar. Uh, you could talk about anything. There's a, a ton of things on that site. So this was a post on Reddit's site. It's actually gone now, but at the time we grabbed it. Uh, it's why it's so important that you have somebody really checking these things daily and pulling them and saving them because this could come into play on a retrial, on future trials for defendants, where this informant may be uh, related to the trial, you're going to want to subpoena these people. You're going to want to see the legitimacy. You're going to want to subpoena, you know, Instagram and, and get that original message just to make sure it wasn't doctored. You know, you want to make sure it's legitimate. And it appears that the girl, I blocked her name out, it appears that the girl uh, responded to this Reddit post. <coughs> Excuse me. And she says, John Panisi is a fake. I had only been speaking to the guy for two days back when he sent me the message about his dream. After all, who am I? She put in quotes. 
what the fuck is that even? So that's her. Sorry to curse. I try not to curse on here, but listen, I gotta, I gotta read it. So, <laughs> uh, and I'm not a prude. I, I could curse. It just this isn't the format for it. Trust me. When I get mad or I'm with my friends, I'm sure I drop, I drop some words that uh, are not appropriate. But I'm definitely no uh, saint. Never claimed to be. So let me see what do we got on here. Okay, this is now um, the second, the second part of that. This was the dream she was talking about. This is her, again, this was on Reddit, and she posted, or somebody posted uh, their interaction. Uh, John Panisi, apparently, and I say apparently because you would want to subpoena these records to make sure it's legitimate. So, but my point is this is how you start the investigation phase. You come across things like this, and now you look into them. You, you dissect them. You, you, you try to break them down, see what, what you have, what could be used, what can't be used. So this starts off, he, he messages her, I always had the sixth sense where I would dream something about someone and it was so clear like I was actually there. Many times the dream was close to an actual event. For example, the night before 9-11, I had a dream of rockets hitting Manhattan and the next day our buildings, twin towers were hit by the planes. Holy shit, that's, that's some ability. Jesus. I envy that ability. I wish I had that ability before the lotto comes out. Maybe next, next time before the lotto comes out, I can have a dream with all the numbers. That's crazy. The other day I dreamed that you were having sex with a guy. It was like I was there. I was sitting in a chair watching. The strange thing is I haven't heard from since I had the dream. I guess you meant to say I haven't heard from you. Hope all is well, and if my dream were true, which I get it, if you will not admit nor owe me any explanation, and I get it, if you will not admit nor owe me any explanation. After all, who am I? Oh, that's what she meant earlier when she put the who am I in quotes. And then she writes, it was my granddad's birthday yesterday, and I told you that the day before, and I continued to like your pictures, although we didn't, and then it cuts off. But wow, that's... That's pretty crazy. So I guess he's saying he had a dream. Let me try to decipher this. Let me let me try to break down the psychology of this. I got to use some of my uh, psychology skills on the courses I take. Let me see. So the other dream I dreamed you're having sex with a guy. So I guess he's trying to insinuate to her like you, not that you're cheating, because I don't think they're really dating, but maybe she's with somebody else. And if that's the case, tell him because he has these dreams that tell the truth. And being he dreamed it, that means it's true and she should come clean. Oof. I got a diagnosis here, but I'm going to keep that to myself. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen. Okay, this is a little out there. But now, regardless of how out there it is, these things could be used. You subpoena these people. You subpoena the girl. You find out what took place. You get all the original records. You get that. You try to get that in with the judge. You don't know unless you try, right? So these are things you have to try to submit when and if the time comes because they can only help your case. They can't hurt it. They can only help it. Now, the other thing I want to show is just there's a lot of things in media a lot of the times. You have to get be a member of a lot of those sites where you can get archived newspaper clippings. Now, the defense has what's called a reverse rule 16, and that's before trial, whereas you're basically putting in the information you want to submit to use at trial, whether it's articles. It's a lot of the defense's investigative work. They call it a rule 16, a reverse rule 16 you're going to want to introduce into trial. So you submit a package to the 
prosecution, and then they decide if they're going to object to anything, and then it could go to a hearing where the judge will uh, decide what they're going to allow in and what they're not going to allow in. Now, these are articles on one of the informants that was part of a case I was part of that I've been speaking about this episode. This is all related to John Panisi. And these are just articles this talks about uh, when he was accused of and then later convicted of committing a murder. And this is when they were looking for the sub the suspect. He was on the lam, which again, you'd want to introduce. The person has a tendency to flee when something happens. They don't want, you know, they, they, they're hiding out or whatever you want to call it, lambing it, whatever you want to call it. Just things that, again, could go towards credibility, go towards character that you'd want to find and introduce. And there were several articles on that. This article talks, talks about how the, um, the family got upset that they made bail. The family of a 20-year-old Glendale male, man shot dead last summer in a dispute over a young woman have questioned the Queen's judge's decision to release his two alleged killers on a million-dollar bail each. So John Panisi and his co-defendant were released on bail. Uh, talks about how they found him in the Hamptons. He was seized in the Hamptons. Um, detectives from the 104th Precinct tracked down the alleged killers, John Panisi, and the other gentleman, uh, the other individual uh, of Howard Beach. According to the investigation, they talk about how the young man Cooper was killed by one shot from a 25 caliber handgun during a fight over an 18-year-old woman who lived in the neighborhood. And it just goes on to talk about that. Uh, they, they found him hiding in the Hampton somewhere, and the family was upset that they received bail. And then there's another article that just talks about when they were finally apprehended. Um, my point just is with this, you want to do your research. You want to try to find as much information as you can, compile it, put it in a folder, give it to the defense team to help them with the re reverse rule 16, submit it and see what gets allowed in and what doesn't, what you're allowed to talk about, what you're allowed to ask about. That's why the investigative portion is so critical to trial. These are all things you want to do to prepare for trial. You really want to exhaust all areas of investigative work and I recommend going on those archive news sites pull up newspapers, because think about it, the defendants are in every newspaper article prior to trial. If it's a high-profile target, uh, they're in the paper almost every day before trial begins. So you want to try to find things that could help counteract that. You want to try to find headings. And it all goes towards the overall complete strategy that the defense wants to tackle prior to trial. And compiling all these things, putting them together, getting them ready is vital to that. You don't want to be waiting for the last minute to start looking. And I always harp on the second the indictment is handed down is the second the defense team has to start their job because it doesn't stop. It's constant. Look at all these different formats you have to really navigate and go through and vet out. You have Facebook. I showed you something from Reddit, Instagram. There's so many outlets nowadays, so many avenues. A lot of information could be obtained to help your case. And that's the key. You just want to build a strong, strong case. So that's about it for today. Um, 
I'm hopeful that at the very least everybody learned from today's episode that although something may seem minor, it could turn out to be major. So it's important to really vet these things, look into these things, and never stop that investigative process. When you're part of a defense team or you're the family, friends, supporters of a defendant, and you feel they didn't get a fair shot or you want to make sure when trial comes they get a fair shot, these are all things you could utilize, look into, explore, dissect to truly try to help, try to help the process, try to increase the odds of getting a fair trial. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but at least you know that you did everything you could to exhaust every avenue that was put forth or was available to you. And there's a lot available. Again, when you're going up against an opponent such as the government or the state, you're dealing with an entity that has unlimited resources, unlimited uh, contacts, unlimited revenue they they really there's really not a stronger adversary than that so you have to do what you can to go up against that and how do you do that you have to think outside the box you got to come up with creative ways different areas that they may not be thinking about different areas to explore to appeal to the public Uh, just whatever you could really look into and dive into and understand that could somehow, some way, benefit the defendant, benefit the defense team, and shift the odds a little bit in hopes of getting a fairer trial, in hopes of making sure that the jury gets a complete picture and not a narrative that's being spilled that may unfortunately be filled with a lot of falsities. So you got to do your part. And I believe that's it for today. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justicetechpros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off